happy to talk to you today, Chad Alderman from the Edgenomics Lab at Georgetown University, which first of all, really quick before we get started, what is the Edgenomics Lab? So the Edgenomics Lab is a research center at Georgetown University. We do training on school finance. We help people understand and think creatively about how to spend money wisely on behalf of students. We also do research and writing. Uh, we have a newsletter that if anyone wants to follow our work, uh, you can subscribe to the Edgenomics Lab newsletter. Edgenomics is a combination, a portmanteau word of uh, education and economics. And so we follow school finance in all its forms. Yeah, you guys do some pretty heavy duty research. You're not really partisan. You just look at the numbers. Yeah, uh, we are, like I said, a research center, nonpartisan at Georgetown University. Uh, we do training and research. Yeah, and I know you have a certificate of education finance program, which I did and I very much enjoyed. But you also uh, train school board members, uh, district finance officers, right, yeah, in, the, our, in the larger issue of school finance. That's right. Our big one is what we call the certificate in education finance. It's a Georgetown University certificate. Uh, I've actually done it myself. It's a fun program. You yeah. learn a lot. You get to work with other people interested in school finance and sit around a table with other people. Uh, it's mostly plurality of people is um, school finance officials, but we also have the state people. We have some people in the media, some advocates, uh, nonprofits that also participate. And so that that cohort is a really valuable experience for people too. And that's great because the area of school finance is something that everyone knows like a teeny tiny amount about, but like very few people know a ton about or understand it. I think universally you ask people and they say, we don't spend enough on education. This is the most important thing we should be doing. We should be spending more money on it, but you get into it. And number one, that's not really true. We spend much more per student than most people think. And it's a very complicated area uh, the way the money goes in and the way the money goes out. And there's a lot of moving parts. Um, it seems to me that right now with the uh, three rounds of federal stimulus money for public education, most school districts should be sort of awash in funds right now. Is that true? Yeah, it definitely varies by place. So uh, states that get a lot of federal money got more, all the ESSER funds flowed through existing federal formulas and also big districts big districts with large concentrations of low-income students got the biggest amounts of money i mean nationally it, you could say a couple things one uh it's pretty clear that this year will be the highest spending year per people that we've ever had pretty big increase from last year and the year before that we've been in, on a steady run of increases since uh since the last recession about 2012 2013 we've been steady upward trend um, and then the the ESSER funds are uh, funneling money in. We think that those are the equivalent of about $60 billion of extra money this school year and next school year, which works out to about 8% of district budgets above and beyond. Again, there's tons of variation across the country, but 8% is sort of the national average for this year and next year. So that means... so. Two things are coming then. That money's going to go away. It's temporary. And um, and then another thing that I don't think most folks know about is nationally and certainly in the state of Missouri, there's a declining number of K-12 students, right? So as the federal stimulus money dries up, I've already seen that surveys of superintendents who say it's going to be a fiscal cliff. But what are you recommending that districts do now when, when you know, right now you've got all this money, but then 
uh, you're gonna have to tighten your belts again. Do you guys have like a list of suggestions for districts? Uh, yes. Uh, so to the point about the fiscal cliff, I mean, we think it's pretty clear that it's going to happen. Uh, it's that $60 billion of extra spending this year and next year that then is going to go away. Um, right. Some of that is being spent on one-time things like on maintenance or construction. And so those are true one-time expenses, but a lot of it is not. A lot of it is on labor and hiring people who then uh, districts will either have to figure out some other way to pay for their salaries or let them go. So I think it's quite likely that the 2024-25 school year will be a painful one for district budgets. And we've called it the year of bloodletting because of uh -huh. a lot of this. And it's all written. Like these districts have budgets. Um, we've encouraged districts to have multi-year budgets to put this out publicly to say, here's our projections around enrollment, what that would mean for the state. Uh, here's our Escher money on top of what we have normal. And when it runs out, here's what we're going to do to be able to say now or earlier to, to be able to communicate with the community to say, here's the budget and here's what we're looking at in terms of changes over the next couple of years. It seems to me that it's so hard for districts to reduce spending. So, so hard. I mean, I know uh, in, in St. Louis, city of St. Louis, enrollment is down, I don't know, 80%, I think from the high point. We have uh, high schools built for 1500 kids that have fewer than 100 and they have terrible terrible test scores and yet they're impossible to close yeah uh so a couple of reactions to that one is that this one-time federal ESSER money would have been a good time to for districts to right size their footprints physical footprints so yeah. if they have a lot of under-enrolled schools now would have been a good time to use that what the research suggests is that school closures are harmful to kids. Um, the disruption is bad and communities don't like it, but money softens all of that. And there's evidence that the some of those harmful effects of closures can be remediated and addressed if districts are careful about, okay, if Susan's going to be in an impacted school, let's make sure Susan gets a, a placement in a good school and maybe set up extra counseling supports for Susan and her family to monitor that transition, make sure it goes smoothly. What we're afraid of is that uh, districts, instead of doing that proactive lens, are actually doing, they're sort of using the ESSER money to wipe away, ignore their problems, and then the money will run out and we may actually be in worse problem, worse shape with no extra money to, to solve it. Yeah. And so speaking of ignoring problems or focusing on the wrong problem, Missouri is a state with declining enrollment, and all I hear about from the state education agency, in, in our case it's called DESI, is this teacher shortage and that all effort, money, everything must be put into recruitment and retention of teachers. And first, it just seems weird because we have a declining enrollment that no one talks about. But also, I'm not even, I just am so surprised at the uniformity of this message across the country this year. Does it surprise you? Uh it doesn't, it does shock me. Like I could have spent all my fall reacting to news stories about yeah. the teacher shortage. And uh, there's there's some there's some kernels of truth to it, which we can get into. The supply of new teachers is down from where it was uh, mm -hmm. a decade ago. And so that does make it harder to recruit people. There's just a smaller pool. Um, but in terms of raw numbers, we have about the same number of teachers that we did pre-pandemic. And when you start to look and say, well, okay, we have fewer students in public schools, but we have about the same number of teachers, that means our ratios have fallen. So the number of 
students per teacher is lower than it once was. And I looked right. up Missouri before we got on the call, and it's true in Missouri that they right. have more teachers than they did probably ever uh, last year. And so their their teacher-student ratios are are lower than they were before coming into the pandemic as well. Yeah, I mean, one of our biggest districts, Springfield, I looked at it quickly um, a couple of weeks ago, and they lost, I think, a couple of thousand students and they added 40 teachers. I mean, they're just moving in opposite directions. And this, and so this equally or similarly, uh, this idea of what we spend on education in Missouri, there is a default that it only has to be more than whatever we spent last year, even though we have declining enrollment. And um, that's another one that's really hard to sort of break through with folks, like why there's an opportunity at the state level to have a more efficient education budget that doesn't always just have to be higher. Yeah, I mean, you diagnose a lot of the things there. My The director of the Genomics Lab, Marguerite Rosa, has talked about what she calls the big bet in education has been uh, more staffing. So for the last, yeah. honestly, three, five decades, uh, whenever we need to solve a problem, the answer has always been more staff. And that means that we haven't done things like lengthen the school day or pay the existing staff more money. Instead, we've used uh, increases in budgets to hire more people. So we have more people in schools than we did when I was a kid or when baby boomers, my grandparents were in, in schools. Um, but we are not necessarily paying the existing teachers more and the staff members. We just have a lot more staff members working around teachers as well. The, yeah, the I don't last think... thing is that is some individual teachers might not feel that way. Like their class might not be any different, but there are lots of other specialist teachers. There are lots of other people in special roles working around them. And uh, some of that is probably effective and good. Some of it maybe is not well integrated and isn't helping students as much as we want it to. Yeah, I don't think folks realize that that is a choice. My colleague James Schultz talks about it quite a bit, but that's a choice. When you have uh, X number of dollars, you can either choose to hire more people or pay the existing teachers more. But it seems to me, often I see that people want both. They want to be able to hire more teachers and they want to be able to pay teachers more. We talk a lot about teacher pay in Missouri, and the state is trying to mandate an increase of the um minimum teacher salary, which, you know, because it's step and ladders, it sort of goes all the way up through. And, um, you know, if the state doesn't fund it forever, then it gets shifted districts that you have to, whether you want to or not, you have to pay your teachers a higher starting salary. I think actually, uh, so a couple of thoughts on this. One is that the national average teacher salary has been essentially flat for since 1990. Uh, and it's remarkable how flat it is, actually. This is inflation-adjusted terms. So I, really? when I say flat and stagnant, I think people think that literally teachers haven't gotten raises. That's not true. They're still getting raises. It's keeping up with inflation. It's just not rising above inflation. Um, and uh, Why do you think that is? I think it's some of these choices. So at every level, some of it's state mandates, some of it's districts decision-making, they've chosen to invest in more staff as opposed to higher pay for existing staff. And then there's some, honestly, incentive arguments or nefarious arguments that unions uh, yeah. would prefer to have more people and members of the union as opposed to higher paid members. They might have a flat rate for every person rather than a percentage base of salary. And so that is an incentive then the union 
wants to have more members rather than worrying so much about individual salaries. And then there's always the pension issue. Yeah, uh, we haven't got to the pension issue. I don't <laughs> want to work on the pension issue. If you think of it as a pyramid, minus the word scheme, but it is kind of a pyramid, right? So the people on the bottom are paying for the people on the top. You need a larger and larger base. Yeah, uh, Marguerite and I have written about this as well. We have collectively as a country kind of screwed over the new generation of teachers yeah. because we've loaded them, the system, the pension systems with debt, unfunded liabilities. We made promises that we didn't save for, which then means that we have to pay for them in every successive generation has to pay more. And then the response has been one, to raise contribution rates and two, to cut benefits for new workers. And so most states have multiple tiers of benefits and the newer generation gets the worst tier. Um, and so this just keeps happening. Some states have multiple tiers and they just keep adding them on over time. In Missouri, teachers uh, contribute 14.5% of their salary. That's incredible. If you figure your typical 401k payment is going to be 5 or 6%, it's triple. And, you know, if you're if your starting salary is thirty five thousand dollars, that's rough to put almost five thousand of that straight into your pension that you may or may not ever see. I've actually written about this, too. So there are some Missouri teachers who think that the Missouri system is the best one in the country. Like they have Why? They told me explicitly that and I think it's because they they see the fourteen and a half percent contribution from the employer side and they think that is going to their benefits, but it's not. So there's a couple factors. One, Missouri doesn't participate in social security. So you have to take that off the top. And uh, so that brings it down to uh, closer to 8%. And then you have to look and say, well, of the employer contribution, how much is going to actual benefits for workers versus how much is going to past um, promises that were never funded? And there's a big gap there. In fact, the actual dollar amount that's going to workers is really not very generous at all it's it's all the unfunded liabilities is where yeah, i mean they do great pr money. i think i i don't know i would be i would be very unhappy if i was paying 14 and a half percent of my paycheck right out the gate and they the st louis and kansas city systems they raised it they do pay social security and they're slowly ratcheting it up some states i think i recall you saying that illinois it's upside down for new teachers they pay in more than they're guaranteed to get out yeah uh this is from their official statistics so officially i haven't looked at the exact numbers recently but uh, illinois teachers were putting in the employee contribution was 9.4 percent and the state said, okay, the total value of our benefits are only about 7%. So that gap is actually a contribution towards the unfunded liabilities that the, all the employees are making. And there's some like employees don't know this because a lot of Illinois districts have what's called a pension pickup. And so the district might be making the quote unquote employee contribution, but it's still the employee contribution. It's still compensation that the employee is not getting uh, because the employer has to pay it. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds on pensions. However, do you think that when new teachers come out of college and they sign their first teaching contract, they just don't read it? Or what do you think? What do you think is going on? No one has stopped and said, I want to make sure you understand what's going on here. Or, or what do you think? Well, pensions are complicated. Uh, health benefits are complicated. Yeah. I think young people aren't really focused on benefits in general. I think yeah. they're mostly looking at location. They're looking at total base salary. 
they're looking to know that they have benefits, but otherwise they're not able to sort of weigh the pros and cons of different structures or look at a pension formula, like what this will mean if I stay seven years versus 21 years. It's, it's, it's complicated math. And there are like academics who argue about the proper way to value a pension value. And so uh, we can't expect a 22-year-old young teacher yeah. to make those, com those uh, calculations. Okay, so pulling back, if you were advising superintendents or district finance officers right now about what to do for the 2024 school year, is there anything that they could be doing now other than multi-year budgets? Is there anything that they could be like uh, m making less painful cuts now so that 2024 or 2025 isn't a bloodletting? Uh, a couple things. So one <laughs> on labor, uh, looking at the benefit load that the districts have, making sure that employees know how much the district is spending on benefits. So just that informational piece sometimes is missing. So the employees can appreciate it more how much districts are spending. Um, the other thing that we've argued for is using existing employees to solve problems. So if the district wants to offer tutoring or summer school, Offering those to existing employees through stipends is oftentimes uh, a better way to get more labor than to go out into the private market to try to hire new people. Particularly, I saw today the uh, unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since someone walked on the moon. So it, it's, right. it's really tough out there. But using your existing labor pool to solve problems, whether that's... Um, uh, driving buses, whether that's uh, cleaning up the school. Uh, we've seen a lot of innovations uh, districts have done of finding new ways to recruit labor, whether that's high school students or existing employees or retirees, getting them back in in some way. It's going to take some creativity to to solve some problems. What about transportation? Because we've had a couple of so a couple trends that I see there, uh, the state is being asked to fund more of it. Missouri, we do a cost reimbursement, which means districts are incentivized to maximize their transportation costs for reimbursement. And they get to include all kinds of stuff. Um, at the same time, there is a plenty of news stories about the difficulty in hiring bus drivers. And we know that ridership on the bus is at an all-time low. It's in like the 40% now. It was generally 52%. 54% of kids rode the bus now we're in the 40 percent. Um, what can be done there? Yeah, a couple ideas there. Uh, so we've seen some districts expand their walk zone to say uh, they used to only offer buses to people outside of one mile or two mile, and they've, they've expanded that. We've also seen some districts have offered, let's say you have a few scattered riders on a particular route. It might be better if you could get those people, the parents, to take them to school and not just force them, but what if you offered them some money and say, hey, would you be willing to take your kids to school if we give you some payments? And there are some districts that have paid um, a couple hundred dollars a month for parents who have been willing to do that. And and you're not going to get everybody that way, but you might ease some of the, the burdens. The other thing I've seen is on who you can recruit as bus drivers or thinking about the yeah. bus driver job in different ways. So rather than just have the morning and the afternoon pickup, like can you have them do some other roles within the school day? And then maybe it might be a more attractive job on the pay and benefit side. Or um, 
uh, I've, I've seen some work on the licensure issue as well. So if you're as a school district competing with uh, big commercial trucking companies, that's maybe not the best competitor for you. So how do you, as a state, might think about other uh, license and regulation rules that bus school bus drivers maybe not don't need the same regulation as a big commercial trucking uh, driver. Yeah. So then one last thing, you know, uh, the school choice has expanded in the last few years. In the last two weeks, two more states have said you can take your state money and go anywhere you want to go. Um, what do you think about portability when it comes to funding at the state level um, and trying to get more of the formula funding that is based on enrollment, take up a bigger chunk of the budget so that kids are more. So we are considering open enrollment in Missouri right now. The sticking point is we don't know how to make the money move around and how to do the accounting basically in a way that doesn't create disincentives. Do you think it is uh, better to make funding more tied to the number of students or, or does it matter? Yeah, I'm generally in favor of tying money to students, particularly uh, you can have a base amount as well as amounts for student need and extra money that drives that way. Um, and then you do get some of the solutions uh, you're mentioning of uh, different schools have different incentives in that, in that context. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I was going to say on this is related to equity. So if the state is able to fund and provide a higher share of expenditures on education, that often is a more progressive, more equitable way to distribute funds than having a higher share on the, the local side, which is more tied to property values and whichever communities have higher property values can afford a better schooling system. Um, have you guys been tracking the spending of stimulus money or do you i mean it feels like the last round american rescue plan uh districts got a ton of money i know missouri we got almost two billion to distribute to districts and it seems like i'm not seeing in the news anyway any information about how that money is being spent we are doing our best to track it so we have what we call an expend exer expenditure tracker on the genomics lab site where we are finding whatever state data is out there. It's on the reimbursement actual expenditures. So the state has the money, but districts have to file for a reimbursement to, to get it from the states. We have the data, whatever the states are tracking and reporting. Some states, it's only the pace of spending. So we can say how much has been spent. Yeah. Uh, other states have more information on the categories or a function of the money. Um, it's it's messy out there, but we've tried our best to sort it out. Won't they eventually, won't states have to report back how they spent it? Uh, the, the U.S. Department of Education is trying to collect some of that data. I am mm. not optimistic that they'll do it in any systematic way. The, the cost accounting codes just weren't set up for that. And oh, Marguerite likes to talk about saying to a family, like, what did you buy last year that was red? And you'd have to think through and categorize it all. And no one budgets that way. And so a lot of the things that they're asking for, like, how much did you spend on tutoring? Well, we just don't have cost codes set up that are comparable across the country. And so we're gonna have a really hard time getting good comparable data, unfortunately. Do you, do you think the bulk of it's going to learning loss? I mean, obviously, you're not buying uh, uh, Lysol wipes anymore or masks. 
Well, the, the last round of ESSER funds, the Congress said 20% had to be spent on addressing learning loss. Uh, I would say districts are spending a little bit more than that, but we don't know what that is and we don't know how they're ca categorizing it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, some districts are doing high impact things like tutoring or extending the school year or day. Others are doing less impactful things like professional development. The research on professional development is not very convincing that it's going to yeah. address some of the student learning gaps. Right. Uh, so there, there is a lot of gray area, even in learning loss recovery spending. Well, uh, I'm just going to make a quick plug for our work, but we put up a website a month or so ago. And for every district in Missouri, you can look at extremely detailed spending data from 2020, 2021. And we basically just took the report that every district submits to the Secretary of Education, Annual Secretary to the Board report, and uh, put them on a website that allows you to to look at them, essentially, to explore the data. And one of the, um, and it includes all revenue and all expenditures since 2021. It isn't even 2022. But <clears throat> right out of the gate, folks were criticizing the website because the per student spending or the per student revenue was too high. And we included stimulus. I mean, we included everything. And then, you know, I've got like, well, is capital in there? Yes, it is. Is this in there? Yes, it is. We just took the total revenue and the total expenditures divided by the number of students just to put a pin on a map so you could compare across districts. Other than that, we didn't do any calculations with the numbers. We just put the numbers up so that you can look at them. It's like 500 lines per district. Advertising, diesel fuel, every sort of just put their checkbook up from that year. Uh, but folks were, you know, some districts, when you include stimulus money in there, it's $30,000 plus per student, you know, especially our small districts. They get a ton of money. And that's why I think um, we haven't seen any real transparency or consistency on where that money's going. And me being the messenger, I took the hit, you know, for saying, well, those are their actual numbers. You can look at them and you can also pull the same numbers off the state website. Uh, I just made it easier to look at, but folks were very upset about the totals. And I was like, that's what it is this year. And I think uh, statewide, the average would be about 18,000 per student. And I, you know, that's a lot of money. I don't, I don't know, but I know that it goes to a lot of different places. And I think that's the piece that folks, you know, I, why would you understand? I don't understand. You know, there's lots of things I don't understand, but there is 400 line items for every district and the money goes here, there, and everywhere, basically. Yeah. And do they all use the same, the 400 line items in the same way? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's messy out there. I'm glad you're doing that work. That's cool. I'll go check it out. Yeah. Um, you know, some districts taking a ton of money at ticket sales to student, student activities like football games and plays. Some taking none. Some take on a lot at the bookstore. It's just very, to me, because I like numbers and I like finance. To me, it's really interesting. I haven't had a chance to dig in because I was spending a lot of time getting them up on getting the website built. But, you know, a lot of money goes from one district to another. There's a lot of back and forth. They send students over here or they send students with disabilities, maybe because they can't serve them. Transportation and a lot of money goes between districts, which I didn't realize before. A lot of money is paid out in tuition by parents to send their kids to different districts. So, a lot going on in there. If anyone's interested, it's called mostschoolrankings.org. But I just want people, if they're interested, to dig in and try to understand it better. Because again, coming back to what, where I started this is, it's something that people talk about all the time and hardly anyone really understands it other than you guys. Yeah, there's uh, this poll result that I really like. The Education Next annual poll. They ask people, 
how much do you think your school district spends locally? They also asked them how much you think the average teacher makes in your community. And both things, the poll respondents were way off. They didn't, they always guessed low. They, on teacher salaries, they were off by about $20,000, which is like 50% too low for the average teacher. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think it does lead into some of the scarcity mindset, like schools, are understaffed, even though they're not necessarily, uh, they don't have enough money, even though they have a lot more than they used to. And so it, it leads into a, a scarcity mindset of what schools have versus what they could do. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, judgment free on what I put up. And, you know, folks have asked me, is that too much or too little? I'm like, I'm not judging, but I just want you to be able if you think it's too much on advertising, then talk to your superintendent yep. or school board, not me. Yeah, yep. uh, you know, anyway, Final question, asking you to prognosticate, what do you think is the biggest trend in education finance that you see happening? Uh, yeah, the big one for me is what might happen in a couple of years from now. So uh, I mentioned this already. We we talk about the 2024 or 25 school year as potential bloodletting when all of this ESSER money goes off the books and districts are suddenly having to figure out how to, if they want to preserve some of their existing spending or they have to let people go, uh, it could be ugly out there. And so using the next uh, 18 months to help people understand what's coming and plan in advance. If, if your uh, schools are under-enrolled, now would be a good time to do something about it. If you would like to start a new program to change the teacher workday, now would be a good time to start it. But the clock is ticking. And so when it happens in 18 months and people are, you know, yelling crisis, I can go back to this podcast and say, we told you it was coming. Yeah, it is not a surprise. Yeah, it is foreseeable. Uh, Districts should be thinking at least two years in advance and they should be running the math. It it, uh, is very transparent in terms of where the money is, the timeline. Those were congressionally dictated. So we have it all. We've known it for a while now and they're coming. And if they want more information, they can go to the Edgenomics Lab website. What is that? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's just Edgenomics. We just say the Edgenomics. <laughs> edgenomicslab.org. Uh, again, nice. E-D-U-N-O-M-I-C-S lab.org. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chad. I appreciate you spelling some of this stuff out for us. Thanks for having me.